Bill, good to see you, man. Uh, Bill doesn't remember this, but uh, when I was in high school, Bill, Bill is uh, Fred Koblenz's son. Fred uh, was, as you've heard, chairman of El- uh, the elder board at our church. Uh, his family, 30 years at Coast, a beloved saint. Uh, one time in high school, I think I was a junior, I was at their place. Because you know, the Co- Koblenz house, it was open. It was, you know, you always, they had people over all the time. Friends, open. And, uh, you know, it was adult time, so the adults were talking, and I think Bill was, uh, was tasked with babysitting. And so he uh, took me to his room, kind of entertained me while the, uh, the adults, you know, ate steak and discussed important theological matters. <laughs> and uh, at the time, um, I had dreams of becoming a rock star, uh, <laughs> which worked out great. And... Um, well, Bill actually has uh, some musical talent, uh, something I didn't have, but he, he thought he might um, try and impart a little bit of it to me. And so I remember uh, at the time I was learning guitar and you know, I couldn't strum right. And Bill sat there for two hours being like, no, down, down, up, down, down, up. And he just so patient. Then uh, Bill, uh, he took me out to his truck and he showed me um, a system that he'd been putting together. Um, then he, uh, he showed me a, uh, a Pink Floyd laser disc, uh, a, 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 one of their concerts where there are like lasers flying. He's like, isn't that awesome? They got lasers. I was like, yeah, so that is pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I got to wondering, uh, it wasn't just Bill. I mean, at, at youth group, I was a junior, um, Rob Koblenz, Rob, Rob was, our, was one of our youth group helpers, um, mostly because he was poaching on uh, Kristen, who... Uh, <laughs> who at the time was, a, was in the youth group. I, I just, let me just say, uh, at Trek now, uh, the youth group, I sort of oversee that. Doug and I work with that. That's not going to happen to your daughters. Uh, just FYI, just throwing that out there. Uh, and it's not his fault. Kristen was carrying a torch for him at the time. Um, and I remember uh, even um, then, you know, sitting on the curb with Rob and being like, dude, this is so awkward. <laughs> And Rob just being open, um, I remember him saying things like, uh, well, at the time he, you know, he was very respectful and waited, um, but then at a certain point they began dating, and I remember him telling uh, my father, you know, she's a girl I can pray with. And you have to wonder, I mean, if you know the Koblenz family, you know that this is like the all-American, the greatest group of human beings that ever lived. First, I mean, number one, they're all physically fit. All right, they're all strong. So if the commies invade, they're going to be on the front lines defending the rest of us. All right? Now, I take great comfort in that because I obviously have nothing in that, in that uh, category to protect you with. So I'm glad there's people like the Koblenzes out there. They're all masters of every kind of sport. They're all incredibly successful. Um, all right, fine. They're good looking too. All right. You guys win. Fair enough. And uh, as a kid, I sometimes wondered, man, why are they friends with me? They got everything going for them. They got it all. The world's in their hands. And every single one of them would have said, Tom, yeah, he's my friend. That was because their dad, Fred, set an example. Fred made friends for the master. 
wherever Fred went, and his family has followed him. They don't look for people who are just like them. They don't look for people who are as cool as them. It'd be hard to find. Instead, they look for the people that God's looking for. And they make friends for the master. Jesus is going to tell us a little bit about that today. If you uh, received your note, seat, note sheets, please um, stand. And I would request that you, you follow in the note sheets and not the pew Bibles because I've made a number of changes uh, to the text, mostly for smoothness in translation, but occasionally uh, of substance. So please stand and let's read Luke 16, 1 to 9, as Jesus teaches us about making friends for the Master. He, Jesus, also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a manager. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was squandering his wealth. So he called him and said to him, What's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Then the manager said within himself, What am I going to do? My master's taking the position away from me. I can't dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I feel you, brother. I, I'm with you. I have resolved what to do, and, with, and that when I am dismissed as manager, that they, who are they, may receive me into their houses. So one by one, he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill, write eighty. Then the master commends him, praises him, this worldly manager, because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons or children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons or children of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by worldly wealth, that when it is gone, they may receive you into eternal Homes, you may be seated. It's a long and storied history of this text. A lot of angry scholars yelling at one another about what it meant. Uh, I want to suggest up, up front that really we should think about this teaching of Jesus as almost like a sermon illustration. Uh, this is not a, a deep allegory. This is not a, a deep... There, if you, if you get too far below the surface, you start getting confused. You're trying to assign this event and this circumstance to this thing in my life and that thing. And that's actually been uh, one of the problems that interpreters have had all throughout uh, the years. In fact, this uh, text was, is very strong, even uh, with our Roman Catholic friends uh, nowadays, to talk about purgatory and indulgences. So they would uh, make an allegory. They would say, well, um, you know, you... Uh, they don't anymore because they've stopped doing indulgences, but back in the Middle Ages when they did, they would say, well, the priest can come, and the priest uh, is sort of like the dishonest manager, and he can take some of your, um, your debt away so that you have less time in purgatory. And that was a way that this text was interpreted. Um, I, I don't think Roman Catholic exegesis does that anymore, but you can see the problem. If you really start to get too deep into the text, you start to lose, lose uh, contact with, with the important aspects of it. 
So when we're looking at this, we're going to think of it as a sermon illustration. Jesus is giving a sermon illustration. He's going to look at something in the world. He's going to look at something outside these walls, outside the regular lives of the disciples, but something they're familiar with, and he's going to make an example out of it. He's going to say, if you think like that, you'll understand this. The other major important change that I've made to the text is, uh, you'll notice I've used the word worldly in verse 8. A worldly manager. And in verse 9, worldly wealth. Uh, I'm using that as an English gloss for a word in the Greek that um, can mean things like unjust or dishonest. And if you read in the New King James or other modern tra- uh, or some of the modern translations, you'll get words like that. And it's because they're having a difficult time figuring out exactly what Luke's picking out with this word. Um, what is Jesus aiming at? And I think that when we look in Luke Acts, uh, in, in both of them, we're going to find that this word and its uh, opposite, dikaya, which means righteous or just, so dishonest, unjust, righteous, just, those are two um, pairs, are almost always used to pick out two different classes of people, and this is very important, because these two classes of people are nailed, out, are nailed for us. They're, they're spelled out for us by Jesus in verse 8. There's two classes. There's the sons, the children of this age, them folks out there. And then there's the sons and children of light, us folks in here. And there's a difference between these two groups. The children of the world, we've been hearing about them all morning. The children of the world are invested in themselves. They're invested in their needs and their concerns. They're invested in this one life. The children of the world assume that all of the rules and expectations and values that we get in the culture, that's all there is, and they buy into it 100%. Jesus is leading a counter-movement to this. Jesus is calling out the children of light. People who do not belong to this age, but people who belong to the next age, the kingdom age, the reign of God. And he calls them out with these descriptors. Dikaya and Adikaya. All throughout Luke Acts, we get this. In fact, to give you just an example, a just man, a heavenly-minded man, a next-age kind of man, we find him in Luke 2.25. Simeon, what does it say? Simeon was just, Dikaias. And devout, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. This is a next age kind of guy. And so that word gets used of him. In our parable, the manager is a this age kind of guy. And he's good at it. He knows how to make a buck. How to protect his butts. Let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, interestingly, um, notice, so he's about to get fired. <laughs> he's like, whoa! Well, my back and arms are too weak to dig, and I sure don't want to be ashamed by begging, so I better figure something out. Well, this indicates that uh, apart from this house that he lives in, he's a poor dude. He's uh, he probably, um, this is very common in the ancient Near East, he probably sold himself into slavery. He, uh, he's a savvy guy. He's got a little charisma, he's cool, and he meets this rich guy, and and he's like, hey man, I'm going to make you a buck on what you've got. Will you take me? 
probably signs a contract, becomes a slave. Slavery is not what we uh, know in, the, in contemporary times in 17th to 19th century Chattel slavery. That is very different than uh, the slavery of the ancient Near East. Uh, slavery of the ancient Near East could end. Um, it, you didn't have really the right to like torture your slave, or um, they weren't property as such, but they did owe you. It was more like a bond servant, um, a con- contractual labor. So this guy, he's poor. He's got nothing to go to, to to survive on, but he knows what's good, right? He knows what's important about life, just like we do. It's important to have a very comfortable, expensive leather recliner in front of a very large, very high-definition television. That is, I mean, that's it. Okay, that's not it. It's also important while you're reclining and watching this TV to have people come and begin massaging your feet, which is a thing. I don't like that. When people touch my feet, I freak out, but Aaron digs it. Uh, Massaging your feet, and then someone with grapes dropping into your mouth and serving you the food that you like the best. That's it, baby. That's what life's about. This guy gets it, and he's at the bottom, and he's like, I can't stand that. It's me. I'm awesome. I don't deserve this. I deserve that. And so he walks into the town. He finds the richest dude he can, and he says, hey, man, have I got a good deal for you. You put me up. You feed me well. You give me some status, and I will make your fortune explode. And that's what a household manager did. In fact, a household manager, um, you might think of Joseph uh, from the Old Testament, he does it. Um, But a household manager walked around town with all of the prestige, all of the wealth, all of the authority that his master had. This guy went from down here all the way up here. He was walking around. We're going to find out in a second just how rich his master is. His master was loaded. And when he walked around, people got out of the way. They put out the red carpet. They said, this is the guy. And he loved it. It doesn't get better. He, is bu- he bought in 100% to the world's values. He's worldly. He knows what matters and he gets it. Because he's shrewd. Because he's savvy. He lives in a luxury second only to the master himself. He participates in the activities of a wealthy family. If he plays his cards right, he'll marry and have children that are not born into the status he was born into, but will be able to what? Go to college or whatever it is that marks a person who can have a household of their own. But this guy, he got too used to sitting that lazy boy. We don't know exactly what squandering his wealth in verse 1 means. We can, get, we can guess. I mean, what he's really about is, is ease, it's comfort. He's too weak to dig. He doesn't want to build his muscles. He's too ashamed to beg. He wants status. So probably he was enjoying it a little bit too much. And he stopped paying attention to his number one job, which was grow the fortune. Make it bigger. Master finds out. Bad things. Now, <laughs> you might be wondering, uh, it's difficult for us to get a, uh, a bead on, what, a hundred measures of oil. Yes, 100 measures of oil, don't know what that is. Uh, uh, 100 measures of wheat, don't know what that is. Well, let me give you um, a little bit of a way to think it through. All right, 
you take um, 100 measures of oil. Well, that has to come from, from, uh, from olives, right? It's olive oil in the ancient Near East. And in order to get 100 measures, uh, sometimes they translate it jugs, but okay, 100, 100 jugs of, of oil, you need how many trees? Well, you need enough trees such that the land it would take to have that many trees is about 25 times the average plot of land that someone would have in Palestine in the ancient Near East. Okay? That is a lot of land. These are the people that the manager is going to as poorer than his master. They owe his master. And they've got 25 times more than the average folk in the street. This guy, that tells you what about the master? This, he's the godfather. I mean, this guy runs the region. Seriously, he, I mean, he's, he's in a throne. What do they say now? Made from the skulls of his enemies. Uh, he's, I mean, he is, he's, he's this, this. He, this man is so wealthy, it's difficult for us even to get our minds around it. He, there is no way that anyone that is anywhere near him could have this kind of money. That's the guy that the worldly manager got a job with. Now, if, if, if that's the guy he's, he's dealing with and he says, oh, you had a hundred uh, measures of oil, cut that in half. Dude, that's like half a million dollars. Seriously. In, in U.S. dollars. He basically says, hey, brother, I know it's tough times, right? Half a mil, no big deal. You walk away from that. Cool, right? What's he doing? He's making friends. Right? When's the last time uh, that you were deeply in debt? Well, this happens to me pretty frequently because um, starting, by the time that Aaron graduated, and God willing, I'm graduating in June, um, we, we've racked up quite a lot of debt. Uh, it's embarrassing to talk about, so I'm not going to give you a figure, but it's, um, it's substantial. And when someone walks into your life and says, ah, cut it in half. You have no idea what you just did for me. You cannot possibly comprehend what you just did for me. If you ever need anything, I will do it. I won't think twice. That was a crushing load that I could never get rid of. And you just... There is nothing that I will not do for you. You've just earned yourself. You've just purchased a friend for life. Friendship's kind of a big deal. Uh, in the ancient Near East, um, there's really three types of friendship. It's in your, in your note sheet. We get this from Aristotle. Um, there's the first type, which is what um, our worldly manager is dealing with. It's called client-patron friendship. It's the kind of friendship that exists between two people who are not equals. If you walk into my life and you make my debt go away, you're definitely above me. And now I'm loyal to you. We're friends. And you can imagine that there's probably some mutual affection between us for this to have happened. And that's the second type of friendship, mutual affection. 
The third type, and for Aristotle, the greatest, purest, most desired type of friendship is joint pursuit of excellence. Joint pursuit of excellence. Now, we've seen a little bit about what client-patron friendship is. It's um, two people who are of different statuses. The one who's above comes down to the one below and says, here you go. And the one below says, I'm your guy. Mutual affection. Well, we know what mutual affection is. It's probably the standard form of friendship in our culture. It's when you just click with somebody. It's when we just, we get along. But Aristotle noticed something about mutual affection. Maybe you've noticed this in your own life. Um, Let's, my dad always says, uh, my dad plays the lottery. He waits. He waits until it's, uh, I think it's like 75 million is like his, that's where he's like, okay, I'm in. That's enough. You know, if it's 20 million, like, who wants that? Because, you know, after, after taxes, you're going to walk away with, what, seven maybe? I mean, is that, I mean, pff, why bother, right? Uh, my dad, he waits till about 75 million. He jumps in and he always says to me, he says, gosh, I really hope I don't win. Like, okay. He's like, because then I'd have to move away. I'd lose all my friends. Well, Aristotle noticed something about mutual affection. Mutual affection is subject to a problem. Namely, that uh, when it starts out, you're on equal footing, you get along, you have the same, you're interested in the same stuff, you're cool and all that. And then suddenly, uh, one person is really successful. And the other person gets a little bit jealous. It comes between them. One person uh, goes through a terrible time in life. They, what? Get cancer. Oh, they're not so fun anymore. They're not worth hanging out with. Moving on. Mutual affection is not a strong bind between folks. The vagaries of life can shake it up, can break it, Aristotle says it is always fleeting. Enjoy it, but don't get too invested. The joint pursuit of excellence. This is um, when two or more people come together and engage in a craft where they push each other to greater and greater feats of excellence. This is the basis of all of our modern sports movies. Uh, you know, the facing the Titans, is that right? Right, facing the Titans, remembering Rudy. Um, what are some of the other ones I know? Uh, we are Marshall. That's a, that's a sports movie. Aaron loves sports movies. I find them... Okay, they expose me for who I am as a weakling, and I don't like... And Hoosiers. F- Field of Dreams. Okay, great. So a lot of fans here. That's good to know. Well, the, st- the stereotype of a, of a sports movie is it starts out like this. There's all these people, and they come from different backgrounds, different um, wealths, different status, different this, different that, and they come together, different races often in our, in our context, and then they, they're, they're put into a situation where they all have to throw touchdowns or shoot three-pointers or swing the bat, all the things that are super important in life. <laughs> And each brings strengths and weaknesses to the table. And yet they come together with a common goal, the pursuit of the championship. 
And they work together, sharpening each other, raising each to the highest level of excellence. And as they do it, they find that all the things they thought they did not have in common, they do. They find more. They find bonds that, that form between them. Bonds that change their experience of, of, of being together. You know, at first, there's the, the tall, gangly uh, white guy. And then there's the tough um, guy from the hood. And at first, they're like, mm. But by the end, it's like high five. And gosh, it's great to be on a team together. You've seen the movie. Because they've been joined together in the pursuit of excellence. And this kind of pursuit changes everything. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. Notice that this is the only type of friendship that, that doesn't, it doesn't matter if one person's up here and one person's down here. In the pursuit of this common goal, they become one. Ooh. Some of us have experienced this, and it is awesome. I, I, you know, I, I, I joke a little bit, but I mean, really... When, when you find someone who shares your passion about something and you, and you do it together, the bonds that you create, are, they're, they're phenomenal. But Aristotle says this too is fleeting. Because you win or you don't win the championship, but the team breaks up. Even more sad, occasionally in these movies, there's one player who just doesn't have what it takes. And so he has to quit the team. And the rest of the guys get together and they continue their pursuit. But that guy, he's, he's off. Even this, this highest form of friendship is fragile. It's fleeting. Now the worldly manager, I mean, we... We say, yeah, obviously he's on that, that lowest level of, of friendship. He's like, hey guys, I'm about to be out of a job. I need a place to stay. How about I give you half a million dollars? What do you think that's worth? Couple weeks? In the nice room? All right, good, done. But surely the worldly manager is thinking into the future and he's probably thinking, well, I hope that in one of these houses I get along with these people. And I hope even beyond that that in one of these houses we can get behind a common project together, namely business, namely increasing the fortune of the house. And maybe I can work with that person. Maybe I can repeat, reinsert myself into the kind of life that I'm just about to lose. The worldly manager's making friends. What might be the most jarring part of the story for us is that the, the master comes back and he's like, nice. Nailed it, brother. Yeah, you cost me a couple million dollars, but man, good job. You're, you're sharp. I like you. That might be a little bit weird for us. Well, uh, in, in this culture, it's basically, you know what it is? It's the end of Scrooge, okay? A Christmas story. At the beginning, Scrooge is like, and he has all this money. And then at the end, he's like dancing around town in his pajamas, throwing turkeys at people, throwing gold coins to the children. And suddenly, everyone just, just turns around. They're like, whoa, this guy's awesome. You see, everything that the worldly manager does is in the master's name. So when he gives you $500,000, it's not just the worldly manager doing it. It's his boss. And you're like, that boss is an awesome guy. I like him. The worldly manager's actions have this totally weird, unintended consequence where the master comes back and he's like, hey, when, when did I become the most popular guy in town? This is great. 
He's walking down the street. They're throwing out the red carpet. They're like, thank goodness you're back, Scrooge. We love you. Because his manager was looking out for himself. Without intending to, the manager's greed, his fear, have landed the master more friends than he knows what to do with. From now on, he's going to get a lot more dinner invites. And he's going to have a kind of credibility, a social cachet, cachet that's more valuable than the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that honestly he already has and probably doesn't need. So Jesus tells this story. And he's like, man, you guys get it. That's how they do it out there. You got this scoundrel you know, worldly dude, and he comes up with this crazy scheme to, to, to get himself a, a nice place to stay after he's fired. Look how many friends he made. He's greedy, he's desperate, but boy, is he good at making friends or what? You guys, you, you, disciples, you don't have to be afraid. I'm taking care of you. You don't have to be greedy. We've given all that up. We've left that for the kingdom. Why can't you figure out how to make friends for the master? He's a scoundrel, a rascal. And suddenly his boss is the toast of the town. All he's trying to do is save himself. What do you guys think you are here for? You're here to make friends for me. I want to come back and I want to be the toast of the town. I want everyone to say, Jesus, yes. You are supposed to be making friends for me. What are you doing? You are supposed to be making friends for eternity. Look at the kind of friends that they're supposed to make. It says at the end of our text, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by worldly wealth. And when it, worldly wealth, the world, is gone, they, your new friends, may receive you into eternal homes. These aren't the friends of remembering the giants, titans, we are Marshall, whatever it is. These aren't friends that just break up after the project's over. These are friends forever. These aren't the kind of friends who are going to welcome you into their home, let you take your ease. They're not going to be able to give anything back to you. In this world, in this world, these friends, they're like Tom and the Koblenzes. Bill's sitting there, he's like, this kid can't play guitar. He's never going to be able to play guitar. I don't know why I'm wasting my time. Except, except that Bill does know why he's wasting his time. He's not wasting his time at all. He's investing in a friendship for the kingdom. He's making friends for the master. He's taken this awkward, useless kid, and he's bringing him into the community of faith. He's giving him the kind of gracious welcome we all crave. And he says, this is what God is like. I don't need anything from you, Tom. God didn't need anything from me. Jesus is about to get crucified, friends. You know how Jesus makes friends? He pays your debts. He credits you everything. He doesn't ask for a single thing in return. 
He says, open hands, open arms. It's yours. It's free. It's gracious. There is no cost. I'm going to bear it. He doesn't just take you from 100 measures of oil to 50, 100 measures of wheat to 80. He takes it all and just wipes the slate clean and says, there's no cost. Welcome, friend. This is a different kind of friendship, a friendship they don't understand out there. Why is it that we're having such a hard time making friends? Jesus makes friends. There's no, there's no expectation of repayment. It's free, open-handed. It's sheer, total, utter gift. In your note sheets, it says, Jesus asks us to make friends for eternity. A friendship that doesn't break up over mutual affection. A friendship that's not based on my power and your lack of it. A friendship that is not a pursuit that will end. It is open, it is free, and it never, ever ends. So thanks, Fred. Thanks for teaching Bill and Rob, and I know Rick, but he's a lot older than me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Fred, for teaching your boys what it means to make friends for the master. Thanks to Mary Ann for teaching a lot of us what it means to make friends for the master. Thanks to anyone who has found a way to deploy whatever resources you have to take the far off and bring them in. And say, no, there's no price, there's no cost. Just come in. You're not friends anymore. You're family. Let's pray. God, we pray that uh, this church will carry on the legacy that Fred left us. God, friends for eternity. Friends at no cost, no price, no expectations. No barriers of status or wealth or class. Instead, your children operating by your rules, free, open-handed, just like the cross. Pray that uh, the friends of this church will be family. In your son's name, by the power of your spirit, family. In his name we pray, amen.